Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and 11 through 16. The word of God speaks to us. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the good work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, if we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. It's really good to, to worship with you this morning. Uh, hey, maybe you're here today and you were dragged along by a friend or a family member. Maybe you came from uh, VBS this last week. Whatever it is that brought you here today, if you're not someone who is sure where you stand with Christianity, with some of the claims of Jesus, man, I just want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, you do not have to believe what we believe. You do not have to live the way that we live. We are really, really glad that you're here. Uh, we don't have all the answers. We've never assumed that we do, but we are committed to processing deeply with you, to wrestling with the claims of Jesus. We don't think that you have to check your brain in, in at the door or your story in at the door or who you are in at the door. We're just saying welcome to you. So we're glad that you're here. Uh, we really do believe the stuff that we're singing. We really do believe the stuff that we're uh, talking about. And so if you have questions about that or if you want to know more or if you just want to be around and watch the way that we do things, we'd, we'd be honored to have you here. So thanks for being with us today. Um, man, I'm thankful for all that God is doing behind closed doors. And Matt, uh, somebody said this, I think Josh Warren said this earlier, uh, but your generosity. Earlier this week, we were able to help multiple single uh, moms in our church and, and, and people that are in desperate need. And that's just because of your faithful giving. So thank you for that. There's stuff that you guys don't see. There's stories that's happening. Real needs are getting met. So just huge thank you for continuing to be generous. Amen? Okay. I don't know if we're that excited about it, but it's, I was very excited about your generosity. So thank you. Keep being generous. It's, it's a big deal. Uh, hey, let's take a second. Let's pray. And then we're going to jump into Ephesians 4 today. Father, thank you for 
what it is to gather with the people of God week in and week out. And just the, I, I get to this place and I'm remembering what's true. I'm remembering what matters. I'm remembering who I am and who you are and what you've done and the story that you've brought us into. And today, I don't assume that I have anything helpful to say. I just pray that you would speak to us out of your word. I pray that you would shape us. I pray that you would form us. We want to be more like you. The world is crazy, and people are crazy, and we need grace to know how to be mature and not be children that are tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. We want to grow up and be mature. And so would you do that in us as Christians? Would you, ta- would you allow us to be people who live what you call us to live out? And so bless us and work in us. And for my friends that are not yet Christians, I pray that you would speak to them. pray that you would move in their life today. In Jesus' name, amen. So two weeks ago, we launched a new series called Rhythms of Grace. And the idea behind the series is not that we're doing anything new. It's actually that we're doing something really, really ancient and really old. The, the idea is that when Jesus saves us, he doesn't just kind of allow us to float down the lazy river of life, but there's things that he calls us into as Christians. There's a way in which when you become a follower of Jesus, you're brought into this abiding life with Christ, or maybe the best way to define abiding, you're brought into this making your home with God type of life. And so Christians throughout hundreds and hundreds of years have built in these practices or these disciplines or these rhythms and habits that shape who they become as people. We're all being shaped. Everything that you do on a day-to-day basis is forming you or malforming you. We're all being formed either to love Jesus in deeper ways and be formed into his truth in deeper ways, or we're being formed away from Jesus into the world's vision of the good life. And Christians throughout, throughout history have recognized this, and they've built in these practices or these disciplines to help us make our home in God. And today we're going to talk about one of those that never, ever gets talked about in any book or any series on spiritual practices or disciplines that I'm aware of, and it's the idea of how church membership actually forms us as followers of Jesus. Now, I know when I say that, some of you are like searching for the door (laughs) or searching for an excuse to get up and go to the bathroom and then quickly get in your car and drive off because you're like, oh man, really church membership? And to talk about church membership means that we have to talk about the church. And in Oklahoma, that can be kind of a mixed bag for us, right? So here's what I found, that there's three different primary categories of how people relate to the local church, probably true of any Western culture, but specifically in Oklahoma. Here's the first way that often we relate to the church. The first is cultural Christianity. For whatever reason, some people in the Midwest, some people in Oklahoma, they've inherited their relationship to the local church like they inherited their skin color or their eye color. Hey, it's just what we did growing up. My dad went to church and his dad went to church and grandma went to church and it's just what we did as a culture, because we live in Oklahoma, we don't have mountains and we don't have ocean. What else are you going to do on Sunday morning? Let's just go to church. So the relationship there is just one of inherited religion. It's not something that you own or believe or bleed. It's just something that you do on a Sunday. That's one approach that's fairly common in Oklahoma. The second approach to the church that I often see is one of consumerism. I remember meeting several years ago with a friend from Southern California, and uh, he drove into downtown. We got some coffee together downtown, and the very first words out of his mouth when he showed up at the coffee shop, he was like, 
there are so many churches everywhere. And I just kind of forget, like I, I've lived here my whole life and have never left Oklahoma. I've always grown, grown up here, been here, love, love Oklahoma. And so I just forget that there are churches on every corner, which in some sense can be a gift and a blessing. But in another sense, if you've ever been in that awkward position where you have to find a new church, it can be really overwhelming, right? Now, there's a level in which when you find a new church, you do want to try to find a church that lines up theologically with what you believe the Bible says, and you're searching for philosophical and biblical alignment, and that's all fine and good. But here's the danger. The danger is that slowly over time, your relationship and my relationship to the church can be based more on consumeristic culture than on actually being an active participant in the body of Christ. Uh, There's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote. If you've not read it, it's really worth your time, The Screwtape Letters. And what he's writing is this kind of, this concept of an older demon who is mentoring a younger demon named Wormwood, and he's trying to disciple this younger demon into how to disrupt the faith of Christians. And so imagine, this is one of the things that this older demon says to Wormwood. He says, surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes him a critic where the enemy, who in this story is God, wants him to be a pupil. And I just think that that's a danger that you and I need to acknowledge and face, that we actually can run the risk of getting to the place where it's like, well, I like the worship over here, but I really like the preaching over there, but the kids' ministry over at this place is really great. And it's not been uncommon for me over the years to meet someone who goes to three or four different churches to get whatever thing that it is that they're searching for. And when you do that, you actually miss out on what it is to be a Christian embedded in the local church. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. The third approach that I think people have to the church, and this is the final one, this is probably also the, the, the most felt one in our current cultural moment, and that's the credibility of the church. There's a growing number of people who are deeply concerned about the church's credibility or lack thereof that they might say in our cultural moment. Perhaps you feel like the church has just been responsible for causing way too much pain and heartache in our world, and you just want to jettison the church altogether. One author says it this way, says, when the church is functioning at its best, there's simply no community on earth that can rival it. But when the church is functioning at its worst, there is no community on earth that can do as much damage. History itself proves the point. The church has served untold millions, as is evidenced by the number of churches, hospitals, orphanages, schools, and relief agencies that Christians have founded and operated. But the church has also brutalized untold millions, as the medieval inquisition and the religious wars of the 17th century also demonstrate. I've said this to you in the past, if you've been with us for a while, but I don't remember a time in my life where I've not been connected to the church. I've been attending church since nine months before I was born and was there every Sunday, every Wednesday, every time the doors were open. I have a long history with the church. And some of the worst, most painful things that have ever been done to me have been done at the hands of Christians in the context of church. And yet, what's also true is that the best moments of my life, the most incredible moments of my life, the most formative, important moments of my life have happened through connection to the local church. So it is a mixed bag. And if you come with baggage on the church, hey, I get it. And we're not perfect. 
And, and we don't mean to or intend to, intend to, but we probably will fail you over time. And so if this is your concern, here's the question that we're all left with is like, is it possible to have a thriving relationship with Jesus and just be disconnected from the church? Is, is it actually possible to have a flourishing relationship with Jesus and not bother with the local church? Or couldn't we just say like, well, I'm a, I am part of the church and everything I do is as a part of the church, so I don't need to go to church. I don't need to have any relationship with people who are Christians and I can just live out my Christian life. Is that possible? Well, with those questions in mind, I want you to think about something that I find to be unbelievable. In the passage that we just read together in Ephesians chapter 4, there's a man by the name of the Apostle Paul who is writing positively about the church. Now that's big, and if you know about Paul, that kind of one that should take your breath away a little bit. Because Paul, prior to becoming a Christian, was known as Saul, who was an active persecutor of the church. In fact, Saul saw the local church and saw Christians as a threat to be destroyed, and he was doing everything he could actually arresting men and women so that he could snuff out the church. The church was the problem. And then guess what happened to Paul? He meets Jesus. And Jesus says this bizarre statement. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, to have, an anim- to have a, a posture of negativity towards the church, to, to have a posture towards the church that's seeking the church's harm is to, in a real sense and in a real way, have a negative, opposed posture to Jesus himself. And Paul, through the grace of Jesus and over time, goes from being Saul the persecutor to Paul the church planter. And here we are in, ch- in chapter four of Ephesians. And if you know anything about the book of Ephesians, it's like Paul's manifesto on the church. It's amazing what he's saying. In chapter one, Paul says this. He says that before God created anything, before the foundations of the world were laid, God the Father drew up this idea and this vision of the church. And he actually chose the church. He predestined the church to belong to him. And then chapter two says that when we were dead in our sins, when we wanted nothing to do with God, that God in his love and mercy made us alive together with Christ. And then he goes on to say this in chapter two, that that people who are formally separated and opposed to one another, people from different ethnic backgrounds, different religious convictions, different types of upbringings, God in the church has actually brought them together and he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between all people. And then he says this in chapter three, he says that the church is now the manifold wisdom of God to the world, that actually it's the church that's a sermon to the world, demons included, that God is brilliant, wise, and powerful. Now, I wake up on Monday and don't think that about our church. I wake up on Monday and don't think we are really preaching a beautiful sermon to the world about the manifold wisdom of God, but that is Paul's vision of the church. It's that it's the manifold wisdom of God. And then we get to chapter four, and in chapter four, Paul's gonna introduce us to, in my opinion, one of the most impactful metaphors for how you and I understand what the church actually is. It's the body of Christ. So with that in mind, look at verse four of chapter four. There is one body, the body of Christ, one body, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Fast forward to verse 15, the second half of verse 15. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the what? 
is the head. So Jesus is portrayed as the head of this body into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. One of the most breathtaking metaphors for the church is that you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, are now brought in and we are the body of Christ. The big idea here is that when Jesus saved you, he didn't just save you from sin, he didn't just save you from a way of life, but he actually saved you into this thing called the church. And and, and when you became a Christian, you didn't just become someone who is forgiven or someone who is a son or daughter of God or someone who is brought into the family of God, but you actually became a member of the body of Christ, as Paul says in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Like, Think of yourself as a joint or a ligament or a part of a human body that together we make make up the body of Christ. This is your entirely new identity. You're not just an individual Christian. You are a member, a joint, sinew in the body of Christ. So in light of that, I want to give you three things for why our relationship to the church matters, how church membership is actually one of the most formative ways that you and I can grow as Christians. Here's the first thing I want you to see, church membership as counterculture. I I want you to think about how counterintuitive and countercultural being a member or a part of the body of Christ is in our cultural moment. One of the reasons why I think you and I struggle with membership or commitment to the local church is because as a culture, our highest value, not this, and it's highest by, there's no comparison. Our highest value as a culture is freedom and autonomy, personal autonomy. If anyone is going to be an authority figure over my life, if anyone is going to tell me no, if anyone is going to shape how I live, or if I can't fully express who I want to be in the way that I want to be it, then I'm out on that. And friends, it doesn't matter if you're politically right or politically left. Freedom and personal autonomy are the highest values. It's my body. It's my guns, right? You can't tell me how to live. You do you, and I'll do me, and let's just not even worry about, like, it's, it's, my, it's my life. I get to choose how I want to live. And so if anything is going to restrict you, if, if anything is going to hold you back in our understanding of that, if anything is going to be an authority structure over you, or if you're going to have to be accountable to anyone else other than your own personal dreams for your own life, then we are, we are adamantly averse and opposed to that. And yet, think about how counterintuitive it is what Paul says about you and I as Christians. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he's writing this letter to Ephesian uh, churches from his prison cell in Rome. He says, here's what I urge you to do. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Friends, if you're a Christian, you have an external calling on your life that you are called to live inside of. Think about that. Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
Did you hear how many times he used oneness language in that text? Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are no longer an autonomous, isolated, disconnected individual. You are a part of the one body of Christ. And not only that, but you are no longer free to just live and do as you please. You and I are deeply embedded and accountable to one another. Our new mantra as Christians is not culture's mantra of you do you and I do me. Guess what the new mantra is for followers of Jesus? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is over us all. This is our new mantra, and we are so deeply embedded into one another that we are ligaments and joints and connective tissue that make up the body of Christ. You're no longer free to just do whatever you want. Chapter 4 of Ephesians says that your new role, your new responsibility, your new calling is to eagerly, eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's to actually show humility and deference to one another. It's to bear with one another in love. And here's what's so crazy about how many of us think of church. I think often we consider ourselves as Christians as uh, isolated individuals in this way. Well, I've got my friends. I've got my hobbies. I've got my job. I've got the other things in my life that I have to do. And then I've got my church. And I just, I go, you know, once a month or twice a month or every, whatever it is. I, so I've got my friends, my church, my job. My, and, and, and what Paul is saying is so different than that. Did you catch it? What he's saying is that, no, it's not just like a thing that you do. It is who you are now. You are a part of the body of Christ. And so you relate to your family as a part of the body of Christ. You relate to your friends as a part of the body of Christ. You relate to the world and your job and vocation as a part of the body of Christ. That that is the new identity in which you are living out of and expressing yourself to the world. It's not expressing you, but the body of Christ. It's a really, really big deal. Now, that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is the church and church membership as formation. And here's the question, like, well, if that's true, if I'm a part of the body of Christ as a Christian, and everywhere I go, I'm not just attending church, but I am the church, then do I still need to be a member of a church? Or can I just like chalk it up to like, no, I can have a couple of beers with some friends, and that's church, because I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. We can go to the coffee shop and hang out and have, you know, conversations about scripture and about Jesus, and that counts as church. Or maybe I can just watch a sermon at my house and stay home, and I don't have to have any sort of relationship to the church, because after all, I'm a part of the body of Christ. Do I need to have anything more than that to have a thriving relationship with Jesus? There's a recent Barna uh, poll that was conducted on why people rarely attend church. So the poll was specifically asking people who profess to be Christians why do you rarely attend church? And the most common answer that was given was that they practice their faith in other ways or worship on their own. So the idea there is, well, you can be a Christian. You can have a thriving relationship with Jesus and do that on your own. You don't have to have actual connection to embodied people. You don't have to attend an actual physical local church. You can just have a thriving relationship with Jesus by yourself. The problem with that, friends, is that the very metaphor of a body doesn't allow us to to believe that. Uh, One of my buddies, we were hanging out with a few of our pastors. He's one of our pastors at our Edmund congregation, and he was making a drink, and he took an orange slicer and accidentally sliced off a huge chunk of his finger on accident. And it was 
I almost want to show you a photo of it. I'm not going to. Uh, but like we kept it for a little bit. We're like, look, it's JJ. You know, he's got his finger here. And it was a large chunk of flesh that he took off. And you can imagine what happened to that chunk of flesh. It died. It turned a weird color and it died. Why? Because it was no longer connected to the body. Now, now friends, we get this intuitively. If I cut my left leg off and throw it in the other room, it's not going to survive. It's not going to thrive. It's going to turn a gross color and die because it's no longer connected to the life-giving force of the body. We understand this intuitively about the human body, and Paul the Apostle is making the same connection there with the body of Christ. Let me read it to you. Look at verse 11 again. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. There's this like idea of nutrition flowing from the head and blood pumping from the heart to the rest of the body. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, this is important, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Notice what he says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The way that you and I have a thriving, flourishing relationship to Jesus is in connection to the body of Christ. Let me say it negatively. It is impossible. It is not doable to have a thriving relationship to Jesus and to be disconnected from the body of Christ. It cannot be done. You cannot have a thriving, growing, healthy, mature relationship with Jesus and be disconnected from the local church. Let me give you a few reasons why I think that's the case. We always think that we're better than we truly are, don't we? Am I the only one? We always think that we're better than we really are. Do you remember the first time that you saw yourself on video, maybe as a kid, and you're like, I don't look like that. And then you heard your voice, and you're like, oh, I don't sound like that. That person looks and sounds like a weirdo. No, you are that weirdo. That is, that's actually what you look like and that's what you sound like, right? But seeing yourself from that perspective is very insightful for good or for bad. The same thing is true in community, isn't it? That when you get into real church community, the real you can't hide. The false version of you eventually fades away and the real you comes out and you are forced to deal with the fact that you're not as loving, you're not as mature, you're not as peaceful, you're not as normal as you would like to, to believe that you have some work to do in your soul, right? Uh, yesterday, my wife lovingly, gently had a conversation with me about some things that she saw in my life where she was like, hey, there's a gap. There's a disconnect between what you say you value and how you're living as a husband and as a dad. So let's talk about that. And that was not an enjoyable conversation, but it was a good and important conversation for me. I need people in my life that see the real Andrew Burkhart and can actually speak truth to me in love. 
And that's what the church does for us. Ronald Rollheiser says it this way. says, what church community takes away from us is our false freedom to soar unencumbered like the birds, believing that we are mature, loving, committed, and not blocking out things that we should be seeing. Real church going soon enough shatters this illusion and gives us no escape as we find ourselves constantly humbled as our immaturities and lack of sensitivity to the pain of others are reflected off of eyes that are honest and unblinking. Can I just make an aside here for a minute, friends, as one of your pastors? We as a culture have a very unhealthy obsession with safe spaces, like a very immature, unhealthy obsession with safe spaces. Now, I know that that word, that phrase can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. It was actually added to the dictionary, Merriam-Webster Dictionary in 2017. Let me read you the definition. A safe space is a place as on a college campus, listen, intended to be free of bias, conflict, criticism, or potentially threatening actions, ideas, or conversations. Now, let me just state the obvious as a follower of Jesus we have to fight hard to create actually physically safe places everywhere we go. Amen? Actually, as followers of Jesus, it not only behooves us, it is our call and responsibility to treat every single image bearer with dignity, honor, and respect, regardless of religion or class or ethnic background or how they identify themselves or orientation, none of that matters. Our role is to honor and treat every person with hospitality and love and dignity and make sure that everybody is physically safe. But there is a chasm between being physically safe and being in a space that you actually have an idea that is different than what other people have an idea of or to be in a space where you can't have a conversation where someone disagrees with you because you see that as actually physically harmful. The problem with that is there's a lot of them, but one of the problems is that the word safe doesn't even mean that, that ideas and conversations are not inherently harmful unless we're bringing shame on another person and, and we're not supposed to do that as Christians. James 3 tells us to bless and not to curse with our tongue. But actually, here's the deeper problem with that, is that safe spaces that our culture's trying to erect left and right don't lead to greater maturity, they lead to more immaturity. Because what it says is until you believe exactly like I believe, until you think exactly like I think, and until you, get, until you just assume that I've arrived and I'm perfect as I am, I cannot and will not have a conversation in which you might tell me that I'm wrong. And what we need, friends, as the church is not more safe spaces. What we need is truth in love places. We need truth in love places where people who are, their keys are on their table. They're committed to you. They're not going anywhere. They're going to honor you and dignify you and love you, but they're going to love you enough to say, hey, here's some stuff in your life that's not right. Hey, here's some stuff in your life that needs to be addressed. Here's some things that are inconsistent with the way of Jesus. Let's talk about that. So church, can we fight to create not safe spaces as defined by culture, but truth in love places where we can look each other in the eye and in love say the thing that needs to be said. Amen? Not, not a very passionate amen from you, but I understand that is a very controversial thing that I just said. Here's the other reason why I think that you can't have an active, thriving relationship with Jesus and be disconnected from the body is think about all the one another commands of Scripture. The one another commands of scripture are impossible to do by yourself, right? 
bear one another's burdens. Oh, I'm doing great because I don't have anybody in my life that I have to actually carry a burden for. Be humble. Well, everybody's humble until they're interacting with other people, right? Be gentle. That's easy until you get around people. Like, you have to actually be in, commun- in community with other people to carry out these one another commands of Scripture. And in and this text alone in Ephesians 4, there's several that are mentioned. We're to treat each other with humility, with gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. How do you expect to do that by yourself at home? You can't. You need connection to the body of Christ to grow and thrive and carry out all the things that Jesus has called you to carry out. And that leads me to the last thing I want you to see, number three, which is church membership, not just as formation, but church membership as mission. Let me draw your attention to something that Paul says earlier in Ephesians. This is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. He says, And God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. He's carrying on this, this metaphor of the body of Christ. Now notice what he says about the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What an amazing thing to say about the church, that the church is not only the body of Christ, but the fullness of the one who's filling all in all. And this gets us at the vision that Jesus has for you and I as his church, which is not primarily to just get saved from sin, or even primarily to get saved into the body of Christ where we learn to love one another and treat each other with humility and bear one another's burdens and be spiritually formed in a way that's very different than the world. And then just we cloister up and stop there till Jesus comes back or we die. That is not the point. That Jesus is in the process of deeply forming you and I into mature people. Why? so that we can go out into the world as mature people, as the body of Christ, and offer his presence to our world. That is why he is doing what he's doing inside of the church. It's not for us as much as it's for the benefit of the world. Notice what Jesus says about the church in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't go on perpetual vacation, and he didn't abandon the world. Do you know what Jesus is doing? He's actually just as present, and I would argue even more so present in our world today than he was when he physically walked this earth, because now he is embodying us as his body on earth. We are the presence of God on planet earth, the body of Christ that's reaching out in love, reaching out with compassion, reaching out in mercy, bringing truth, offering grace, helping people who have needs, bringing the the coherence and the peace and the reign and the rule of Jesus on planet planet earth. He's doing that through his church. So think about it. What would Jesus do if he were you? Who would he reach a hand to? Who would he love? Who would he give resources and money to? Who would he be generous for? Who would he provide for? Who would he see healed? Who would he, what needs would he meet? What darkness would he push back? Those are the things that you and I are called to do as Christians. The goal of being spiritually formed is not so that you can sit in your living room and be spiritually formed. It's so that you can go out and offer the love and presence of Jesus to the world. That is a big deal. 
This is what we are called to do. We, uh, not long ago, started teaching our kids how to do dishes, which is a dangerous thing, right? It's dangerous if you like your dishes. And, you know, it's like, load it this way, crash, plates breaking, you know, silverware getting thrown away. Who throws away actual silverware, right? Like, we are missing all our forks. Oh, you throw them away? Great. So we're trying to teach them how to do dishes, and it would be just easier if I did it myself or if my wife did it. It'd just be easier if we did it ourselves. But we want to grow our kids into mature adults that know how to do dishes, right? And also, I don't want to always have to do the dishes, so I want them to help. God the Father could wave a wand, bring, and fix the world. But friends, this is so important. He rarely does for us what he wants to do through us. God rarely does for us what he longs to do through us. He has invited us to play as a good father. And yeah, we make messes and no, we don't always do it great. Sometimes we throw away the silverware, but he has invited us to be on mission in our world. And that is the hope. If you miss, if you miss this, it doesn't matter how much you fast, how much you pray, how much you read your Bible, how much solitude and silence you do, if you practice Sabbath, every, none of that matters if it doesn't form you in a way that releases you in love to the world. This is why we are here. There's a book by a French journalist who used to be the editor of the French magazine Elle called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. You ever heard of this? The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. What's interesting about this book is that its author, who while he was the editor of this magazine, had a massive stroke that left him in a permanent condition called locked-in syndrome. And what that means, it's different for every person, but nothing in his body would respond to his head. Nothing would respond except for his left eye. The only thing that he could move in his entire body was his left eye. He could blink, and that was it. And fascinatingly, while sitting in his hospital bed, over time, he creates a way to communicate with people where they would take the most uh, commonly used letters of the French alphabet, and they would go down the list, and whenever it would get to the letter that he was thinking of, he would blink his left eye. Well, he literally goes on to write a book by blinking his left eye. Think about that. Probably none of us have written a book and you have hands and you have both eyes that work and we have like typewriters. Do we have, wow, I just said we have typewriters. We have, we have typewriters and we've got these, we've got Morse code to communicate with one another. We have, we have crazy technology and our hands work and yet here this guy is with nothing in his body working And he goes on to write this book that becomes like, it wins all these awards. It gets turned into a movie. It's fascinating. And everybody's thinking, man, he accomplished so much by blinking his left eye. Can you imagine what this man could accomplish if he had everything in his body responding to the head? Hey, church, can you imagine if more than just a few people in the body of Christ responded to Jesus as the head? Can you imagine what power and beauty and goodness would be released in our world if more than just a few of us were blinking our left eye. But our whole selves and all of us as a church, we caught a vision for God's heart to be formed for the sake of the world. Man, what could God do in Oklahoma City? What could he do in Moore? What could he do in Norman when you and I took the hands that he's given us and we push back the darkness that exists in our world? This is why the church matters. So where do we go from here Hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you, would you please see your relationship to the church as one of the most important spiritual practices that you can build in? Please see your relationship to the church and being a member of the church 
as a practice that will form you over time. I'll close with this quote from Mark Sayers. In an age that encourages maximum autonomy and the transgressing of limitations, perhaps we need to see the institution of church as a spiritual discipline. We get the idea that making the choice to wake up early and read our Bibles or to commit to regularly giving away our money to a charity or to fast may not always be pleasurable, but in the discipline of these things, that we become more Christ-like. Yet we expect church to always be pleasurable, enriching, and exciting. Maybe the limitations of church, the discipline of regular attendance, the commitment it requires also teach us to be Christ-like. Maybe we need to reimagine church in our minds as a spiritual discipline, which teaches us the value of delayed gratification, of personally investing in change, of becoming more like Jesus.